Amen. 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 Hallelujah. God is good. And all the time, God is good. Amen. Well done and congratulations to all our parents who are dedicating your child to the Lord. Amen. And, uh, okay, I'm back. I'm back online. Amen. Are we good to go? Oh, you can give me a cordless mic. Okay. Amen. Can we turn quickly to the book of Ephesians? To the book of Ephesians, when you are there, please give me an amen. Amen. I just get a few amens. Amen. Can I get some more amens on my right? Amen. If you are seeing Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and James, Revelations, please come and see me after the service. And let's lay hands on you. <laughs> Amen. Family, we continue with our series on the book of uh, Ephesians. Last week, we spoke about being chosen in Christ. And this week, we'll speak about His grace. I've just reached a point in my life where... I just want to teach the Bible. Come on, I want to come to the Bible with my own preconceived ideas or come to the Word with my own message in mind. I just want to let the Bible speak for itself. And if we can let the Bible speak for itself, then maybe we'll get to hear what the Word of the Lord is. What the Lord is really saying to us. Amen. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses for you. And you... God made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath just as the others but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Amen. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Amen. 
God bless all us the reading of his word. So good to see the Jacksons this morning. Uh, I'm really blessed I get to see Jeff twice on the weekend. <laughs> Amen. Mighty man of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your sweet presence. And thank you for all the blessings you made available to us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray this morning you just anoint these lips of clay. And Lord, you anoint our ears to receive the incorruptible seed of your word. Let us hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to our hearts this morning in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody says, Amen and Amen. Family, as you all know, the author of the book of Ephesians, as a quick review, is the Apostle Paul. He wrote the letter to the church and believers at Ephesus while he was in prison at Rome at around AD 62. Around the same time, he wrote Colossians, so you'll see a resemblance in what he wrote to the, to the Colossi church and the church at Ephesus. He also wrote the epistle to Philemon during this time, and Paul's letters can generally be categorized into three groups. He has his travel letters, which is 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Galatians, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans, and then there's his prison epistles and letters, which is Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Philippians. And then lastly, you have his pastoral letter where he writes, to his understudies and spiritual sons, Timothy and Titus. Nine of his letters are addressed to communities, to churches. Four of his letters are addressed to individuals. The name Ephesus, or the city Ephesus, the name literally means desirable. So this tells you from the get-go that Ephesus was a desirable place to live in. Arnold tells us that Ephesus had one of the largest cities in Asia Minor and served as a Roman senatorial as the center for commerce and communication. It, was one of, it hosted one of the greatest seaports which was situated at the Aegean Sea along the Mediterranean. And from that seaport, three major roads led out from Ephesus. Ephesus was also the home of the mother goddess known as Artemis. Artemis also came to be known by the Romans as Diana. Diana or Artemis is praised and worshipped to be the goddess of life. And when a woman would be giving birth, her devotees would cry out the name of Artemis as they're bringing life into the earth. One of the most beautiful features in the city of Ephesus in, antiqu in antiquity was its temple that it built in honor of Artemis. This temple was made of white marble and had 127 giant columns which supported it. This temple was one of the seven wonders of the world at some stage. This was a place where many made pilgrimage. Many devotees of Artemis would come and worship the mother goddess. 
And so today, Ephesus no longer exists, but you can find it located along the west coast of modern-day Turkey. So when Paul gets into the city of Ephesus, he gets into the city on his third missionary trip. And if you know your Bible and history, you'll know that Paul had four missionary trips. During these four missionary trips, it's estimated that Paul traveled over 26,000 kilometers. He didn't do this by car, he didn't do this by plane, he did this by foot and a slow donkey. And he did this by ship. Not those kind of uh, ships you see uh, my brother Clint sailing on now and again in Morocco, no. By foot and by sea, 26,000 kilometers. So on his third missionary trip, he spent a total of 2,600 kilometers to get to Ephesus by foot, not oversea. That is basically walking or hiking or catching a donkey to Cape Town and back. That's how dedicated this man was in spreading the gospel. And so he travels on his third missionary trip to Ephesus and the Bible tells us that he has incredible success in Ephesus. The gospel spreads, the church grows, there's a revival in the city of Ephesus. Many are being converted from worshipping Artemis to worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. And with great success comes great opposition. And during that time, a silversmith by the name of Demetrius rose up. Because when souls were being converted from Artemis to Jesus, it started to affect his pocket and his trade and his business. And so he threw the whole city together in a riot and gathered into one of the the stadiums at, at Ephesus. And Paul was forced to escape for his life from exit from Ephesus. Subsequent to that, in a couple of, of years later, Paul escapes and, he, and then he comes and meet, calls for the elders of Ephesus at Miletus, and he meets them outside of Ephesus. And he encourages them, he commends them before God, he prays for them, and he asks them to remember his labor at Ephesus. A decade later, he writes the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now quickly let's look at the structure of Ephesus and it's important to understand how the letter is structured and you'll see why in a moment. You can divide chapters 1 to 3 as the wealth of the church in Christ. Then you can divide chapters 4 to 5 as the walk of the church. And in chapter 6 we can label the warfare of the church. Alternatively, we can state that from chapter 1 to 3, we have the wealth that we have in Christ. And in chapters 4 to 6, we are confronted with the work that we have to do for Christ. And it's important to understand the structure because 
Paul typically wrote his letters in a Greco-Roman style, so he wrote an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. But his body was divided into two main parts of his letter, the doctrinal side and the practical side, because doctrine must lead to practice. Yeah. And so he'd write and exhort about these wonderful, weighty theological truths, and then he'll bring it down to the home. How do you treat your wife? How do you treat your husband? How do you treat those who are subservient to you? How do you treat your children? Children, how do you treat your parents? And so it's interesting to note that the first half of Ephesians, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, contains the most indicatives. And chapters 4 to 6 contains most of the imperatives. And last week we spoke about uh, how to interpret Pauline epistles. Uh, one of the things you've got to pay attention to is indicatives and imperatives. And indicatives simply refers or relates to, uh, theologically speaking now, the things that God has done. And the things he is doing and the things he is going to do. And imperatives speak to what we have to do, relate to commands. And we mentioned last week that every indicative rests on an indicative. In other words, God never tells you to obey him and do something for you until he makes you aware of what he's already done. Everything that Paul is calling the church at Ephesus to do is dependent on everything he tells them that God has already done. It's upon the strength of what the Father has accomplished in Christ that he calls us to become what we are. And since it is Pentecost Sunday, our Bible topic this morning is on the significance of Pentecost. Very quickly. Where does Pentecost originate from? Pentecost comes from the Greek word which means 50th. Pentecost is also, also comes from, historically speaking, the Festival of Weeks, which celebrated God giving the Hebrews and Israelites the Ten Commandments 50 days after the Exodus and the Passover. And you'll find that God instructed them in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 16. He instructed the children of Israel to celebrate the festival of weeks. And it had to be held seven full weeks plus one day of the Passover, which equaled 50 days. So historically and publicly speaking, Pentecost comes from the Feast of Weeks. In Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 16. What is the spiritual significance of Pentecost? Well, Acts chapter 2 gives us new meaning to Pentecost because 50 days after Christ was crucified, the Holy Spirit descended and arrived. The Holy Spirit arrived in a different way than he operated under the Old Testament. Under the Old Testament... The Holy Spirit came upon specific individuals uh, for a temporary time and for specific reasons. But now since the Holy Spirit has arrived in these times, He permanently dwells in the hearts of believers, even the weakest of them. 
The arrival of the Holy Spirit marks the birth of the church. The church which is not made with buildings or brick or mortar, but the church which is the body of believers which are united in Christ, which, is, which now exists across the globe. The arrival and descent of the Holy Spirit also marks the beginning of the new covenant. The old covenant was a working arrangement that God had with the nation of Israel. But the new covenant is the perfect arrangement which God has made available to every believer. And the new covenant he ratified by the finished work of Jesus Christ through his blood and he sealed that work with the Holy Spirit. So the main distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that under the Old Testament, we are given the law to obey. Yeah. But in the New Testament, you're given the power Amen. to obey. Amen. 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 Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Why the third person? Because he's the third person to be revealed. He's introduced in the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis. And he is stated and referenced in the last chapter of the Bible in Revelations chapter 22. The Holy Spirit is God. And how I like to understand the Trinity, for those of you who are still grappling, is that we have one being and three persons. Being relating to race. Person related to distinct individuality. In other words, everyone in this room is one race. Yeah. Not talking about black or white, colored, Chinese, with Brother Dean, Chinese, with a Chinese brother in the building. Um, but one being as in we are all one human race. We are one human race. We are all human beings. But we are many individuals and persons. Some bigger than others, some more scrawny than others. But one being and many persons. So we have the Trinity, which is one God race. Come on. And three distinct individuals. And the Holy Spirit now in the earth represents the God race, as Christ represented the God race when he was here together with the Father and Christ the Holy Spirit is the author of life John 6 63 Jesus said the Spirit gives life yeah. in Job 33 Job exclaimed he says the breath of the Almighty has given me life and the Spirit of God has given me breath yeah. in Psalm 104 verse 30 the psalmist writes, Lord, you sent forth your spirit and everything is created. Amen. And you renew the face of the earth. So he's responsible for natural birth and he's responsible for spiritual birth. That's why Jesus said in John 3, that which is flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit. And Jesus said he's responsible for natural birth. And he's also responsible for rebirth. Not rebirth the church, but 
You know what I mean? He is also the author of the scriptures. Second Peter 1.21 tells us, For no prophecy came by private interpretation, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy 2.15 says, All scripture is God-breathed. He put his breath over the scriptures. And it's profitable for doctrine, correction, training in righteousness and reproof that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So every time you quote the scriptures, you quote the Holy Spirit. He's the author of the scriptures. That's why Paul referred to the scriptures as the sword of the Spirit. What are his activities? He teaches us. He guides us into all truth. He convicts us of sin. He produces his fruit in our lives. He exercises his gifts through our lives. He, he glorifies Jesus. He testifies of him. And he came to sanctify us, empower us. He is the link between the ministry of Jesus and the mission of the church. And both him and his operations are often misunderstood. So just as a... Uh, uh, I'm just going to scurry quickly through this because these are difficult questions. So just under the topic of the Holy Spirit, there are two common questions that people ask, and I want to address that this morning. So pray for me. <laughs> people typically ask, what is the blasphemy of the Spirit? Mark 3, 22 to 30. Uh, Jesus makes a statement. Uh, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of casting out devils uh, by Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, a demon, you know. And Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided amongst itself cannot stand. And then uh, Jesus goes on to rebuke them strongly. And he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. But it's guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying Jesus had an unclean spirit. So in context, I'm just going to make a statement in response to this question. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a willful and continued state of unbelief in Christ. In spite of the miracles of the Spirit. So you can see the Holy Spirit do a miracle right here and now and you will look at what's good and call it evil. Willfully. Some scholars say that this sin only referred to that specific time, to that specific people, the Pharisees. But that's a debate for another day. The second common question that's asked around the Holy Spirit is, can I be filled with the Holy Spirit and not speak in tongues? This is where you really need to pray for me now. But let me preface my response by saying that as Christians, we can agree to disagree and still build the kingdom of God. Amen. So please, when the service is done, don't tackle me with theological questions. I'm usually pop, 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 pop off the bridge. <laughs> okay. So this is my theological position. As you study the book of Acts, the book of Acts clearly distinguishes and delineates between receiving Christ, believing on Christ, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So there is a distinction between two separate experiences of the believer. And the reason why I say this, uh, you'll refer to Acts 8, Acts 10, um, and I'll, we just use the people of Samaria as an example. Philip the Evangelist goes down to Samaria, he preaches the gospel, there's a revival, people believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. A few days later, Peter and John come, they lay hands on the believers, and they receive the filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in tongues. Okay? That's in Acts chapter 8, you'll find... Uh, in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to the household of Cornelius, he's Gentile, and while he's preaching, they are converted and receive the Holy Spirit at the same time simultaneously. So you can receive the Holy Spirit on separate occasions, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you can receive, it on the, uh, receive Him on the day of salvation. Okay, And so there is a second experience of the conversion or at the moment of conversion. Secondly, I believe that speaking in tongues is not the only evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now you must know it's a big thing for me to say because I was raised Pentecostal. Yeah. You know? Uh, but in scripture you will see that there is a distinction in tongues. Acts chapter 2, uh, when the Holy Spirit descended and came upon the 120 disciples, they did not speak in, in what's called glossolalia. You know? They spoke in known languages of the day. Foreign languages. Yeah. And the pilgrims that were there in Jerusalem uh, to celebrate Pentecost understood what some of them were saying in their own native language. And so you must understand that there is a distinction in the gifts of tongues uh, and there's a d distinction between praying into the gift of tongues and praying in the Holy Spirit. And this is referred to as, that's what the Bible in Corinthians 12 speaks of, diversity of tongues. So you have the gift of tongues where you may speak a foreign language. And you have uh, the prayer language that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, the Greek word is glossolalia. The Greek word for the speaking with the gift of tongues is xenolalia. And so there is a distinction in the speaking of tongues. Okay. And so what you find in Acts chapter 2 is the gift of tongues in operation. And what you find Paul speaking about in chapter 14 is your prayer language. And the difference between the two is that the gift, you, well, your prayer language, uh, you can initiate, you can speak at will. The gift, the Holy Spirit directs you and initiates. Uh, the gift is a foreign language, can be understood by people around you. And the prayer language is where you speak mysteries to God and you have to pray for it to be interpreted at times. Okay. So what you find happening on two occasions out of the four references of Acts is that people speak in the gift of tongues in foreign language who have not been trained in that language. And then you find occasions where uh, some just spoke in tongues and the scriptures don't, uh, don't give the detail of whether they spoke in foreign languages. Okay. And the reason why I don't believe that uh, speaking in tongues is the only evidence of being filled in the Holy Spirit is because whenever speaking of tongues was referenced at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, prophecy was also mentioned. Yeah. They prophesied also. And so it's possible that when you receive the filling of the Holy Spirit, that you prophesy instead of speaking tongues. Mm. Also, it's possible you may speak in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs like Ephesians teaches. But there must be some kind of evidence. Yeah. Okay, now let's get quickly into Ephesians Chapter 2. Done with our topic.
for this morning. And so last week we saw in chapter 1 of Ephesians that Paul gave a tribute of praise to God the Father from verses 3 to 14. Paul broke out in what's known as a doxology. And we saw that in the Greek it is one long sentence in the Greek from verse 3 to 14. And this can be noted as a hymn, a spiritual song. And Paul writes out, writes in verse 3, uh, and he, he begins the song by saying, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in a play of words, he emphatically reminds us of how spiritually blessed we are. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm blessed. blessed. Now, when you read this statement in chapter 1, verse 3, and you're a child of God, and you read about how Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He's being emphatic about the fact that you are blessed. So if you're a child of God, what room does that leave for generational curses? What room does that leave for breaking generational curses when Paul is saying you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places? Don't buy into that lie that you must cut off some generational curse because you are spiritually blessed. And then from verse 4, he begins to catalog these spiritual blessings and we looked at that last week where Paul says that we have been chosen by the Father to be in Christ before the foundations of the earth before the dawn of time he chose you that means you had no merit you had no nothing in you and you had accomplished nothing to earn his election to earn his choice he chose you before you took your first breath and he predestined us to the adoption as sons accepted in the beloved so if he chose you from before the foundations of the earth he's been thinking about you for a very long time and he's had you on his mind for a very long time but oh how much must he love you to have thought of you and chose you before you even said dada and mama and before even said let there be light and then he goes on to tell us about the second spiritual blessing that the son Jesus Christ has redeemed us we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins he tells us that to be brought back by the blood of Jesus from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light is a spiritual blessing. And he says he's forgiven us of our sins and lawlessness and iniquity and he made known to us the mystery of his will and in last he tells us that not only did he redeem us and buy us back from the powers of darkness but that he sealed us with his Holy Spirit as a down payment and guarantee of an inheritance to come and we become the habitation of the holy spirit ephesians 2 22 says being built together for a dwelling place of god in the spirit we now become the home of the holy spirit he dwells in our hearts and this becomes the mark of ownership 
this becomes the mark of authenticity that his holy spirit lives and dwells inside of us then from verse 15 to 22 paul prays for the church of ephesus and he says therefore i also after after having heard of your faith in the lord jesus christ and your love for all the saints we spoke about how the ephesians was was a church that loved they loved the people of god they loved god that's why uh, the lord rebuked them when they backslid and said you lost your first love because this was the most beautiful thing about this church and so paul says uh, i do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers that the god and father of our lord jesus christ uh, the father of glory may give you the spirit and of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him opening the eyes of your understanding and that you may know what is the hope of his calling not your calling his calling and that you may know what the riches of the glory of the inheritance which is in the saints and the exceeding greatness of his power that works towards you and then in chapter 3 verse 14 of ephesians he offers up another prayer for the church uh, at ephesus paul man was a praying pastor was a praying leader he offered up two intercessory prayers for the church of ephesians in chapter two and in chapter uh, chapter one and in chapter three the role of every shepherd it's not just to preach to you it's to pray for you Amen. find yourself a pastor who prays for you Amen. then we snowball into chapter two and paul picks up on the theme of chapter one and now he begins to explain and get into a little bit more detail of how God executed his plan of redemption. And in not so many words, he's telling us that how God executes his plan of redemption for the world is that he turns sinners into saints. Amen. He shows us that God takes the children of wrath as referenced in Ephesians chapter 2. And he makes them the trophies of his grace. And so from verse 1 to 2, Paul sketches a description that is very somber. He paints a description of what a life is like apart from Christ. And he tells the church at Ephesus, this is what your life was like before the faith, before you came to Christ. But this is also true of us here. This is what your life is like now, outside of Christ. And let me preface this by saying that there are four kinds of people. There's those who are unsaved and know that they're unsaved. There's those who are unsaved and don't know that they are unsaved. Then there's those who are saved who know they are saved. But I feel sad for those who are unsaved and assume that they are saved. Because some of these are even preachers. Because on the day of judgment, they will say, Lord, Lord, but I casted out devils in your name. I healed the sick in your name. And he will say, away from me. You workers of iniquity, I knew you not. And so the last type is under false pretenses. 
That's why 2 Peter 1 verse 10 says, Brethren, I beseech you by the Master of God, make your calling and election sure. Make sure you are saved. And so Paul begins to give us the first description of what a life is like outside of Christ, outside of a relationship with Christ. He says, and you, he made the life who were dead in trespasses and sins. Second description is in two and three. He says, and he made you alive who were dead in trespasses in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We were disobedient. And then lastly, he says in verse 4 that we were children of wrath. So we were dead, we were disobedient, and we were doomed. That's a description of a life outside of Christ. And so he uses this term and this adjective dead to describe our spiritual condition, not our physical one. And just as those who are physically dead cannot communicate with the living, and just as those who are physically dead cannot bring themselves to life, so are those who are spiritually dead. They cannot communicate with life. And they cannot save themselves or bring themselves to salvation. And Paul is painting a very accurate description of what, a, what, what, what life is like without Christ. See, the picture we have of salvation and, and, and Christ coming to save us is a wrong one. We have this picture of ourselves drowning in the ocean with our heads under the water and our, and our hands sticking out. And Jesus coming to the rescue. Or Jesus throwing, you know that, that life boy, you know that, what you call that thing? Yeah. The airbag. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you still grab, you grab the, the life boy and you pull yourself out. No, that is not the description of your salvation. You had no claim to your salvation. You were under the water dead. Dead, 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 dead. That's the message of salvation. He don't, he don't turn good pe bad people good. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not the conversion of good people, or bad people becoming good. No, it is God making dead people alive. Some of you are wondering why you can't connect with them. Why your prayers keep on bouncing off the ceiling. Why when you open your Bible it's dead like a piece of literature from Shakespeare you can't penetrate life you can't communicate with his life it's because you are spiritually dead and Paul gives us the second description and he says not only were you dead you were disobedient you were the sons of disobedience you played in the band called the sons of disobedience and our disobedience he describes in three, three ways. He says, you followed the world. Because he says, uh, he says, yeah, in verses two, in which you once walked according to the course of the world. And then he says, again further down, you followed the prince of the power of the air. So you, not only did you follow the world, you followed Satan. And not only did you follow Satan, it says there that you also were children, you, you also, 
gave in to your own lusts and desires. So you followed what everybody else did and said. You followed the unseen rule of this world and you followed yourself. Now when he says you followed the world, I like the way the Phillips paraphrase puts it. It says, to you who were spiritually dead all the time, that you drifted along on the stream of this world's ideas of living. And that, that, that's a description of some of us here this morning. That some of us are just drifting with the crowd. We're just drifting along to the next party. We're just drifting along to the next religious fad or to the next conspiracy or to the next man or woman. We're just drifting, drifting, drifting. And that describes the nature of our disobedience. And then he says, you followed the prince of the power of the air. Now nobody is stupid enough to follow Satan and worship him openly and overtly. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Satan knows how to play us like the Pied Piper of Hamlin. You don't follow him openly, but you follow his tune, like the children do. You don't follow him openly, but you take his bait. And if you take his bait, you'll follow, you'll follow his lead. And some of us have not run into the devil because we're moving in the same direction as him. Now, in the year 2000, there was uh, you know, the whole Hansi Cronier scandal. And uh, the Guardian newspaper had the headlines. You know how media is. They had the headlines of, the headlines of when Hansi Cronier confessed to the match-fixing allegations. And they said, the devil made me do it. But that's not actually what Hansi said. Hansi said, in the moment, and I quote, in the moment of stupidity and weakness, I followed Satan and allowed the world to dictate the terms. And in that moment, I took my eyes off Jesus and my whole world turned dark. Satan doesn't make us do anything, but he knows and surely knows how to lay down the bait. So the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. This indicates that he is the prevailing influence or, or, or he is the prevailing surrounding in which an individual or community breathes in. And some scholars refer to this phrase, uh, the prince of the power of the air, is that he is the power of the unseen realm in which demons operate. And not only that we follow the world and follow Satan, we followed our own lusts. And James 1 says, each one of us is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And, and sin, when it comes to maturity, brings forth death. And the last description Paul gives us of our, of our life outside of Christ, he says, it's a doomed life. Verse 3b, he says, we were by nature children of wrath. Now here's where we get to something very critical in our understanding of the gospel. Paul first calls us the sons of disobedience, now he calls us the children of wrath. And we get to the point where we need to understand sin and the doctrine of original sin. 
But let's talk about sin quickly. Sin is a violation of the creature-creator relationship. Sin is our failure to glorify God, and sin literally means to miss the mark. It is our failure to live up to being the image of God. And when sin entered the world through Adam, sin became universal, and no one escaped it. Sin produces guilt and condemnation, and sin begets death, and sin brings universal corruption, suffering. Every kind of suffering can fundamentally be traced back to sin. Sin affects and shatters relationships on every level. The reason why Christ called for us to be born again is because we are dead in our sins and iniquity. Now let's look at the doctrine of original sin. Original sin does not necessarily refer to the initial sin of Adam. It refers to the effects of Adam's sin. In other words, as a result of Adam's disobedience, we are all by birth sinful and condemned. You'll see this in Romans 5. And as a result of Adam's sin, we are born sinners and corrupted by sin. And as a result of Adam's sin, sin is imputed to us and we share in his condemnation and guilt. So we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we by nature are sinners. And we have a natural inclination and disposition towards sin. So by birth, by natural birth, we are all in Adam. We share in his sin, we share in his nature, we share in the condemnation. And that's why Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. You must have a second birth. And in the study of moral pathology, that's the, the study of moral disease and sin, there are typically three schools of thought. Uh, which have developed over the centuries. Uh, there's Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and original sin. Okay, so let's talk about Pelagianism very quickly. Pelagianism comes from the fourth and fifth century from a British monk who was called Pelagius, who taught in Rome, and his teaching spread far and wide in Rome, and it became very popular. Pelagianism denies the doctrine of original sin. It rejects the notion that because of Adam's fall, the entire human race is contaminated by sin, effectively passing sin down to all the generations and posterity. Pelagius also believed and upheld that Adam's sin belonged to Adam. And it did not infect any human. He also stated that a person's sin could be attributed to Adam now, if a person's sin could be attributed to Adam, then that means we are not responsible for what we've done. Mm -hmm. He went on to say that Adam's sin and transgression only served as a bad example. And he taught that men can be trained and taught how to be righteous without God's grace. And so this teaching began to invade the church at Rome. And Augustine of Hippo 
stood in direct contradiction to these teachings. And he vigorously debated with Pelagius. And he wrote an entire book called On the Grace of Christ. And in this book, he argued that salvation is entirely dependent on God's grace. That all human beings are born into this world with original sin and with a sinful nature and with a natural disposition towards sin. And Augustine argued that salvation is purely a work of God's grace in his son Jesus Christ. And we see that in Romans 5 where the Bible says, For as through one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so as through one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now Pelagianism has found some expression in today's time. Because old heresies just find themselves new outfits in every age stating that you are not such a bad person and all you need to do is follow your heart you are a good person all you need now is to add Jesus to the total sum of your life like he's the cherry on the top you have it in your own means to save yourself just look within yourself and this is where we fail as preachers and ministers of the gospel. And this is where we fail as evangelism, as evangelists, in that we fail to give you an accurate diagnosis of your condition. Come on. I'm not going to tell you this morning that you are a good person and that you need to add Jesus to your life. Because that is not the gospel. I'm not going to tell you except Jesus. And every issue of your life will be fixed. Because that's not the gospel. But what I am going to tell you is that outside of Christ, you're dead. You're disobedient and you are doomed. But Paul opens a door of mercy that swings wide. And he says, but God who was rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us even when we were dead disobedient and doomed Paul now begins to underline and underscore the character of God the attributes of God he says God is rich in mercy he intervened he ensued he pursued he intercepted and, and interjected and he came to the rescue it was all God because a dead man cannot bring themselves to life. Because we have no power in ourselves to save ourselves or bring ourselves to life. Because we are undeserving and no one can lay claim to any right of salvation. But God responded to our plight and our crisis and our need for salvation. And he came to the rescue. And Paul says... That God was rich in mercy with this great love in which he loved us. For some reason we think that God loves us because we're lovable. It's one of the greatest heresies on earth today. There's nothing lovable about us. He loves us because he found the reason to love us in Christ. He loves us because he found the reason to love us in himself. 
We were by nature children of wrath, deserving of death. And he chose to love the unlovable. He didn't have to. He wasn't obliged to. But he chose to love you anyway. And so Paul, in closing, he begins a series of three main verbs. He says, even when you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive together with Christ, number one. Secondly, he raised us up and made us sit together with him in heavenly places. And lastly, he says, in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And when he says he made us alive together with Christ, effectively what Paul is teaching here is that all our life, our spiritual life, our spiritual hopes, our very existence was tied and fixed to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if he stayed there in the grave, we were doomed and there was no mercy. But when he rose again physically from the dead, from the grave, we rose again spiritually. Had he not risen from the grave, we'd still be in our sins. In his second description, he said, not only did he make us alive together with Christ, but he raised us up and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is the position of every believer here this morning. Amen. Your home is heaven. Amen. Your citizenship is in heaven. We are just pilgrims and strangers passing through this land. Our actual position is where Christ is and where he is seated. And lastly, Paul says that in the ages to come, he might show you the exceeding riches of his grace. In other words, the full extent of his love for you cannot be fully demonstrated in this age, but in the future ages to come. He will never stop showing us his love. And then lastly, he tells us, by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. You're not saved by faith through grace. You're saved by his grace it's all him it's the gift of god it's all god's grace you have no boast in you and then he says he saved us with the purpose of making us his workmanship the greek word for workmanship is is the word poema it's where we get the word poem also translated as a work of art paul teaches us that we saved and sanctify and he makes us his work of art he doesn't just deliver you and ransom you but he makes you over so you can't come to faith in Christ and still love disobediently he makes you over and he gives you the grace and he says you are saved not by your works but you are saved for good works you saved for Good works. What of good God we serve. Amen. Amen. Can we stand this morning? Everybody's eyes closed.